In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hey, it's Jordan. It is Saturday, and that means it's time for us to take a little look into the pockets and bank accounts of someone else and use that to try to understand how our economy works, why it's so expensive these days, and what we can all do to find ways to afford the things that we thought we always would. Welcome once again to In This Economy, our newest show debuting here every Saturday, or of course, if you want them as soon as they're ready, in its own feed released every Thursday morning. Enjoy. My dentist was like, oh, that gum, that just one tooth is really pulling back. We should keep an eye on that. And if it doesn't heal on its own and starts to recede further, we should do something about it. This is Linda. She is a bookkeeper in her early 40s, and she lives in a border city between Quebec and Ontario. Linda took her dentist's at-home care tips seriously. After all, she's always been good about flossing and going in for her biannual cleanings. Because this is a front tooth, this then impacts my ability to bite things if I were to lose it, which then impacts my nutrition. And then gingivitis has also been known as a huge indicator and a cause of heart disease. Heart disease runs in my family. You think I want to mess around with something that causes heart disease in an already predisposed genetic line? And when Linda went back for her next cleaning, about six months later, her dentist saw the tooth was only getting worse. So she sent her to a surgeon for a consultation. That visit was $211, of which I got $43 from my insurers. And I was like, what? Because I go and get a cleaning from my dentist and I pay like $196 and I usually get $100 to $120 back. In fairness, unlike cleanings, this visit included getting x-rayed and fitted for a retainer she'd need for the procedure. So Linda knew the insurance wouldn't cover the whole procedure. Some of that money would have to come out of pocket. But she was shocked to see how much. I went and logged in and saw an absolute horrible mess of the estimate. She had sent in an estimate for 1585 1085 of that is for the procedure itself, and 500 of that is for me to be put under or go to sleep for the whole procedure because I have a tendency to panic over needles. So I was just flabbergasted. Linda called around to practices in both Quebec and Ontario looking for a better price. But the only places that had a better deal also had a wait time. He's like, oh, it's $991, but you have to stay awake for it. And we can't see you till March. And I was just like, I cannot wait till March. I will lose the tooth if I wait until March. 
Linda is committed to keeping all of her front teeth so she can continue to eat in comfort. But the price tag means that Linda may struggle to get food on the table in the first place. If I want to get put under for this dental surgery, I have to choose not to buy groceries because I'm already living very close to the wire. And this is enough to make me have to look at my grocery budget because there's just nowhere else to slash and burn from. Linda's not just worried about the cost of this procedure. My daughter, she has aged out of my coverage. She is now in the exact same position. And I'm really hoping that this Canada Dental thing that the politicians are kicking around the House of Commons right now will actually come through to at least get her some cleanings. And so Linda wants to know. Why does my insurer use a list price that is clearly out of touch with reality? I have an insurer, a benefits coverage plan, that's supposed to cover 80% of these things. So how do I make up the difference? Do I get a second insurer privately? Do I marry my boyfriend to get on his coverage? How do I make up this loss? Right now, over one-third of Canadians just can't afford to see a dentist. And while that means, yeah, people are missing out on annual or biannual cleanings, they're also missing out on vital intervention points that down the line could mean the difference between needing a filling or needing major oral surgery. And while people like Linda are struggling to afford what their insurance increasingly won't cover, up to half a million Canadians are without dental insurance altogether. Now, thankfully... There is some help coming. The federal government recently announced that their Canadian dental care plan will begin providing coverage this year to those without private insurance and who have a household income of less than $90,000. Now that's great, but it won't be until much later this year, if in 2024 at all, that adults like Linda, ages 18 to 64, will be eligible. So in the meantime, Linda and thousands upon thousands of Canadians would like to know, how can you afford to keep smiling in this economy? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and you are listening to In This Economy, where we help you understand the systems that create our money problems. That's everything from grocery bills and credit card debt to buying a car, having a baby, and yeah, keeping your teeth from falling out. In each episode... I will talk to a person like Linda, who's facing a financial challenge, and then to an expert who knows that area of the economy well enough to zoom out and not only explain how it got this way, but zoom back in and offer, if not perfect solutions, then things to work towards, options that can help, even in this economy. Many Canadians are struggling to make it to a dentist regularly, let alone afford an unexpected procedure like Linda's. But Dr. Carlos Quinones, Vice Dean and Director of the Schulich School of Dentistry at Western University, doesn't actually think you should worry so much about missing some of those annual cleanings. I've never had a cavity. I don't have any major gum disease at all. You know, do I need to go every six months? Uh, No. How frequently I need to go, that's where the science is still not clear. 
how often do you hear these kind of stories from people who are on pretty fixed incomes? So when I was in clinical practice, I used to hear this story a lot, specifically because most of my clinical practice occurred in public dental clinics. Um, so this is for individuals who traditionally have not always been able to afford the care provided in community dental offices, for example. Given my role as the director of a dental school, I also hear this story quite a bit because often people come to our dental school to try to access services at a reduced cost, which we do provide. Do Canadians in general, and I realize you can't speak for everybody, but how well do we understand until something happens to us that, that dental care is not part of universal health care? I think knowledge of that is much increased recently, uh, largely because of, you know, the new federal dental care initiative. But in general, I think that people, even though they might be covered by employer-sponsored insurance or have always paid out of pocket for their dental care, they may not have an understanding or at least a detailed understanding of the fact that dental care, to a large extent, is included from our national system of health insurance uh, that we call Medicare. Why is that? I mean, I totally understand that there is cosmetic dentistry, like you want to have a nice smile, you want your teeth to be pearly white, and yes, okay, that's not critical, and, and maybe you're willing to pay for that, but there are serious dental issues that can impact the health of your body, and I don't understand, and I'm sure most people don't understand why those aren't covered. And there's a whole host of reasons. There's professional reasons, just like the physicians were not really keen on entering Canadian Medicare when it first started. Neither were the dentists. A major challenge was the fact that in order to have a national system of health insurance that included dentistry, we needed a significant number of dentists and oral health care provider supply, if I can put it that way. And we were significantly short as a result the federal government and provincial governments put up a lot of money to open new dental schools and new dental education training institutions. I think also because of the introduction of things like fluoridation, whether it be community water fluoridation or the provision of topical fluorides in dental offices and people's improvements in their oral hygiene habits in the mid-1900s per se, people's oral health was significantly improving. So if you were a health planner throughout the 50s and 60s, thinking about putting dentistry into Medicare, while it made sense, in some ways you were thinking, well, do we really need to do this given the other major health issues of, of the time? We thought that cavities or dental caries and gum disease or periodontal disease was sort of going to be a thing of the past in the future. And again, I'm here talking if I was in the 1950s and 60s. The other thing is that we were had competing demands. We were about to fund physician services. We were already funding hospital services. So to add dentistry, you know, there was questions of economic viability for the governments to include that. You know, we just needed to look at the British system uh, that had developed in the 1940s to see that dentistry was actually one of the most expensive line items in a, in a national health system, if you included it in, in a similar system like Medicare. But probably the most important policy issue that determined dentistry's exclusion from Medicare was the fact that dentistry was considered an individual responsibility as opposed to physician services or hospital services that were considered a social responsibility. And what do I mean by that? From a policy perspective, we largely thought, listen, just brush your teeth, floss your teeth, don't eat a lot of sugar, you know, eat well. 
and you won't need a lot of dental care, and and thus you can you know purchase uh, preventive care at, a, at you know generally tends to be less costly than major treatments. Is that true that um, if you brush your teeth, floss your teeth? I'm asking you the uh, critical question of all of dentistry right here. If I brush my teeth, floss my teeth, care for them, I'm not going to need a dentist. No, that's not true. But it, it would be disingenuous of me if I said that brushing and flossing daily and not consuming lots of sugar wouldn't have a significant impact on people's oral health. It would. But the reality is that oral disease, again, cavities and gum disease, are some of the most common chronic conditions of humanity. We know that with very recent data, actually. So the idea that somehow it's going to be gone is, is, is just simply not true. People will always have some level of need. And then there's always the catastrophic stuff like getting into an accident and falling down and smashing your face, for example, and losing a tooth or teeth, etc. The reality is that we will likely never be rid of this disease. Again, it's a very common chronic condition of humanity, chronic disease. The fact remains, though, if we if we all took care of ourselves in that regard, we'd have less need for it. But it's the same thing. Listen, if I exercised every day, if I ate very well, you know, if I slept, you know, the 10, 11 hours or whatever it is that people say you need, I'd likely be a lot healthier. And so would everybody. But the reality of life is that health behaviors are not that simple to develop. You were likely supposed to uh, eat a good breakfast and exercise this morning. You know, I don't know much about you, but, you know, <laughs> chances are you likely didn't. So to say that we would get rid of it just by changing health behaviors, I think is is pretty naive, but the fact remains it would make a significant dent in people's need for dental care and so on. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. And for the record, I had a coffee and a bagel. Um, I did floss last night. Wonderful. Just to, there we go. Um, let's talk about that preventative care for a minute, because this is, I think, something that, that people who aren't uh, lucky enough to be covered through their work or even on some work plans, it might not cover as much as dentists would recommend. So how much is recommended and how much should it cost? Because I also want to get into um, why things seem to cost different prices depending on where you are. Well, the tradition in dentistry is that you should go see the dentist, you know, twice a year, every six months. That actually was born out of an advertising campaign in the 1930s. It's not, quote unquote, scientific advice per se. Huh. And in fact, I have a colleague that has been able to find historical references to that as far back as the mid 1700s. So I don't want to I don't want to say that it was born in the 1930s, but it was really driven in the 1930s through advertising campaigns. I also don't want to challenge the idea that frequent visits to the dentist aren't important. They are because the dentist or dental hygienist or can look inside your mouth and catch problems early on before they become major problems uh, that cost you a lot of money or in the context of things like oral cancer, oral cavity cancer, you most definitely want to catch stuff like that early on. But to say by rule that everybody needs to go to their dentist every six months to get their teeth cleaned, you know, that's not scientifically backed. What is scientifically backed is that if you have a lot of oral disease or if you're at high risk of oral disease, then you should definitely be going very frequently, sometimes as frequently as every three to four months. But for healthy people, you don't need to go as often as is traditionally recommended. I will tell you, though, that I do go to the dentist every six to nine months because I do like to get my teeth cleaned. I do like to get my teeth polished because it makes me feel good. And that's not something that we can dismiss. 
But again, in terms of what should be funded by third-party payers, whether employers or whether governments, then I think we need to take a much closer look at this to be able to identify, okay, who does not need to go more often in order to be able to target resources more effectively. You brought up the fact that you go often, even though you probably don't need to. And Linda, who we're discussing here, works really hard to be able to afford that preventative care. I want to get into the the class aspect here of it a little bit, because, you know, now Linda has a problem that she will require a gum graft for. If she can't afford that gum graft, you know, she's at risk of damaging her front teeth. And it can seem to me, and I'm sure a lot of other people, like a spiral that you can get into where you can't afford the preventative care. So you get a problem. You can't really afford to fix that. And then your teeth start looking worse and you know, there is a lot of social stigma attached to having visibly bad teeth and um, just like the class and, and social aspect of being able to afford uh, good dental care. So I think you bring up an incredibly important thing that we often don't talk about. You know, oral diseases, like most diseases, are socially patterned. The lower you sit on the socioeconomic spectrum, whether due to the family you grew up in or because of the jobs you've been able to get, you will have access to less resources and you will generally be less healthy. The higher you sit on the economic spectrum or the socioeconomic spectrum, the more likely it is that you are going to have access to health-promoting resources, whether it's regular visits to the dentist, and that's very much connected to the types of jobs you have in terms of the quality of the dental insurance you have, for example. I think another aspect of the class dynamic is, again, related to what you say. If you're at a higher likelihood of having disease, and then you're at a higher likelihood of not being able to get treatment for that disease, you end up in this spiral, like you said. And the reality is that, listen, you're likely not going to get a job if you're missing your front teeth. You know, society now, where we are today, Straight white teeth are a sign of social success and, and health. So you're, you're ultimately stigmatized. And we've done research to demonstrate that actually quantitatively, that you are judged differently um, based on the status of your teeth. So people kind of get stuck. And, you know, to talk a little bit about Linda's case, she now has to make a trade-off with respect to uh, putting food on the table, especially today when the costs of food are so significant which ultimately will result in her purchasing lower quality foods because those tend to be cheaper, which is going to impact her health further. So again, it can be quite a vicious cycle and something that you know we should be very concerned about. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. 
Let's talk about how things are and aren't covered in dentistry. And, and particularly, uh, you know, Linda's situation is a good one to use as an example. I'm sure there are tons of listeners right now who have been to the dentist for a procedure and been told, oh, well, that much of it is covered, but the rest isn't, or this isn't covered because it's considered cosmetic. So Linda, for instance, told us that, you know, her insurer gave her a quote for the procedure that was hundreds of dollars less than the actual price the dentists in her area were asking her to pay. How and why does this discrepancy happen and how common is that? It's very common in the sense that benefits carriers or another term for that is insurance companies. They're actually in one sense, largely they pay the bill. They're not funding the care. The care is funded in Canada, largely through employers, right? So if you have a job that provides you dental benefits, that's how this dental care is funded. And it's very common for insurers to pay to the previous years or the previous several years suggested fee guides by provincial dental associations. So insurers generally aren't going to pay the full fare regardless. With respect to the discrepancy that Linda is experiencing, which is not uncommon, here we're talking about the quality of dental insurance, meaning the types of insurance that your employer can offer you. The lower the quality job, the less the quality of the insurance generally. That's not always the case, but generally. And the reason is because insurance are communal dollars, right? My employer puts in a little bit. I actually put in a little bit in terms of a premium. All the people that are covered by the plan, by the employer, also put in a little bit. And that creates a pot of money that is then accessed by me and others when we do go to the dentist or consume other insurable benefits. The lower the wage, uh, the less money there is available. Uh, um, you know, the higher quality jobs, I have an opportunity to provide more of a premium. The employer can provide more dollars into that. So ultimately, it's a matter of how many dollars are available for use. So folks like Linda tend to not have, you know, really amazing uh, health benefit plans. I also want to mention that, you know, when private dental insurance was being introduced in Canada, when the decision was made to not include it in Medicare, so here we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s, even into the 80s, the dental insurance that people had access to was in really robust and covered a lot of stuff. But over time, due to, you know, globalization, you know, employer costs going up year over year, you know, employers have had to find ways to save monies. And part of that is to reduce the types of insurance offerings available to employees. And that's just the nature of the beast. We're talking about scarcity in funds. So Linda's plan simply just does not pay as much as what dentists are charging. In terms of categorization, how does that work when an insurer or a dentist is choosing between a necessary or cosmetic or whether it falls under the same category that's uh, covered in your insurance under your annual uh, cleaning budget, I guess, versus the money that's available for procedures that you need. Who makes that determination? Is that the insurance company or the dentists themselves or the dental association that classifies procedures as one or the other? And how does that happen? Well, a significant part of it is is essentially historical custom. At a certain point, employers sat down with insurance companies or benefits carriers that sat down with dentists to sort of figure out what are the stuff that we want to cover more of. So that's why you see preventive services get covered at 100% because we want to incentivize people to go regularly so that we can catch issues early on. But then more major services 
get remunerated or get refunded. That's probably not the best term, but you get covered less for those because ultimately they're riskier, right? They're, they're larger costs. They could fail. And the way insurance works is that you as the individual also bear some responsibility in terms of what risk is being insured. So if you need major oral reconstruction, you're going to have to carry some of that weight because you didn't just get there because of, um, you know, chance. You likely weren't brushing your teeth as often, flossing as often, things like this. So you're, to a certain extent, penalized by that. And by the way, car insurance works this way. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of insurance works this way. And technically, dental insurance isn't actually insurance, but that's for another day. But that's just, again, the nature of insurance. Uh, so you have situations where certain services due to risks, whatever, however you might want to define those, financial or otherwise, tend to receive less reimbursement. You've mentioned a couple times now how things have changed from when dental expenses were excluded from Medicare. I'm curious about... Let's just say the last decade or so, has insurance been covering less? Are costs rising? Are we seeing more people unable to afford the procedures they need to be getting or fewer things covered? I'm just interested in like the current trends. I know everything is getting more expensive. I assume dental procedures are too. Yeah. So let's just take a little bit of a larger window. We won't go 10 years, but let's just say we want to go like 20 years, for example. Okay. Um, I actually only have data available to 2011, unfortunately, but since about 2000 or so, insurers or employers have been paying less of the dental bill, which means that people are having to reach deeper into their pockets to pay for care. At the same time, dental care prices have gone up significantly. And I do want to stress that that is the reality of what it means to run a dental practice. You have to pay your own insurance, your own rent, all these things. All prices have been increasing over time. And as, as a result, dental care prices have also been increasing over time. Uh, then you add, you know, the regulatory requirements around infection prevention and control uh, things related to COVID. So, you know, now I need to buy particular types of masks. Right. Now I need to, you know, rebuild my the inside of my dental office to enclose certain rooms so that I can do certain services. Um, you know, this was all the reality of COVID and that has driven prices as well. Largely though, the biggest driver of dental care prices from my perspective has been the wage increases that we have seen in terms of the employees that we have. You know, we've seen, you know, a wage inflation is a great way to, to, to talk about it. So, you know, dentists have had to respond to that. And ultimately that is borne by the individual. And we have seen from about the mid 1990s into today, year over year increases in terms of people reporting that they can't access care because of costs or they can't get all the recommended care because of costs. So we are now in that situation. What should somebody in that situation do? Aside from, you know, should have thought ahead and had some money stashed away, which is for a lot of people impossible, or should have had better dental insurance or even some dental insurance. Um, when you find yourself in a situation like Linda's, you need a procedure or you're at risk of losing a tooth and you don't have the money necessary to cover it, what can you do? Let's assume Linda lives in Toronto or in London where there are dental schools. You can try to seek care. You can try to become a patient of a dental school. That's an option because you can get reduced cost care. And what you're trading off there is you're going to be spending a lot more time with us because it's a student doing that. Uh, you're helping a student learn. So we want to make sure that what's provided to you is safe and effective. And, you know, so it just takes longer, right? 
But if you're in central Ontario or, you know, central Manitoba or wherever you are, there's not going to be a dental school around. So you may have access to a public dental clinic, but they're probably not going to provide you that gum graft or that uh, quote unquote more sophisticated care simply because they're really meant to provide you basic care. But those public clinics supported by governments and by non-governmental organizations are few and far between. If you are lucky, you have a relationship with the dentist, so the dentist might try to work out a payment plan for you or even provide some care for you pro bono. Dentists do a lot of that. But the reality is, is that, you know, you're going to be stuck, unfortunately. And this is why over the last 20 years has been this big policy push, not just in Canada, but also in the U.S. and Australia internationally, actually, to try to figure out how do we best deal with dental care within broader health policy so that we can push it more into the context of universal health coverage so that people like Linda don't have to make the hard choices that, that they are making and that essentially we can help them given the potential impacts, you know, ability to get a job if you don't have front teeth or ability to get a better job. But even things like daily functioning, you know, if you have a chronic tooth pain, chronic, you know, an abscess, which can become quite acute and brutally painful, you are just not going to function effectively. Mm. So we really want to, um, you know, shore this up to try and close the gaps. I'll ask you about how we do that in a moment. But first, in terms of closing some gaps, there is one federal program introduced recently, the federal dental benefit Um it might not help Linda in this particular case, but for those who are unaware of it or, or don't know what it's about or who qualifies, could you maybe give us an, an overview of that and and your thoughts on it? Um, if it goes far enough, what could be done with it? So just for background, the creation of this federal dental benefit was really born out of the agreement between the federal NDP party and the federal liberals, which are in power. And the minority government made a deal to, you know, secure NDP support. And part of that was the creation of a, of a national dental care plan. And the first part of that plan was something called the Canada Dental Benefit. And it targeted children. So if you were below a certain income threshold, um, $90,000, your children could get access to dental care. And the government would essentially just, you know, you'd have to self-declare that you needed this and you had to uh, provide your income, which I think is tested by the Canada Revenue Agency. But ultimately, you were given a certain amount of dollars to be able to go get dental care for your kids. Uh, so it was what we call a direct cash transfer, right? You got the money in your bank account and you can go get it and get the care you needed at the dentist. There was concerns about it not being enough money. But from my perspective, something is better than nothing. You know, we can't let perfection be the enemy of the good. So I thought a really, really good step forward. But that was the, fa it's a phased approach. That was the first approach. Coming up, we expect the Canadian Dental Care Plan or the CDCP. The benefit will cease to exist, but now you will function in an environment where if you make less than $90,000, you will have access to a public dental care plan, similar to many other federal and provincial plans where you go to the dentist, you know, you present your card, your coverage, and the dentist bills the plan directly for a set of services that the federal government is going to cover. Um, you know, what do I think about it? I think it's uh, an incredibly important step 
nationally for Canada. I think it positions us well internationally in terms of what people tend are, are wanting to do with dentistry more broadly, because it's an understanding that we need to do more for people like Linda in terms of helping them meet their needs so they don't have the negative outcomes of, of a missing front tooth, of, of chronic infections, and so on. What do you think people who maybe aren't in Linda's situation yet, but who have listened to this episode and heard her story and realized like, shoot, I am one unexpected cavity turned bad away from uh, being in here. Should they purchase their own dental insurance in advance? Is that often worth it if you're somebody who generally has good oral health? What are the cost benefits there? And and what would you recommend uh, realizing, obviously, you may be a little bit biased in this area? So the private purchase plans tend to not be as good as the employer-sponsored plans, simply because there's such fewer number of people contributing to that communal pot, if that makes sense. It's actually a relatively small portion of the dental insurance market, if I could put it that way. They also you know, are pretty limited plans in terms of what it is that you're able to to get in purchasing these plans. Now, I'm not saying don't do that. Many people like to be insured for ease of mind and things like this. So it's a real option for some people. What I do think is around the horizon, though, is this, you know, Canadian Dental Care Plan, which is going to cover, I think, at last estimate, about 9 million more Canadians. Hmm. What I will say, though, is I wouldn't wait, you know, go to your dentist and at least figure out what what may be some of the issues that require attention. And last but not least, in the context of this plan, take advantage of the ability to go on a regular basis so any problems are caught early and you can forego the costly, more involved dental treatments. So, you know, and then there's also the reality that you're going to probably have to save some money as well, you know. We always have to save for a rainy day. Some people are lucky that they can do that. Others, not as lucky. And in that regard, I'm glad that we have these federal and provincial programs that, that, that step in. I personally believe we need to do more as a society. That's where my bias is. But I think we're definitely headed in the right direction. Last question. Uh, and your professional opinion appreciated here for Linda. Go into debt to get a gum graft or wait until you can afford it? Um, what are the risks and what would you do? Well, that's actually, I can't provide you a professional opinion on that. Be, right. You know, the professional opinion would be about the technical aspects of the care per se. And even then I couldn't do that. In general, knowing the type of, of problem we're dealing with, um, you know, just in terms of like, I understand because I, I've had dental problems before and I'll, I'll put it like this, you know, when, when you're sitting in that chair and the dentist is telling you, well, you need this and you need that and it's expensive, um, you can often be like, do I really need this? Am I being upsold? Am I being, you know, or can I afford to wait? And I guess I'm saying for a gum graft in general, is this something that you can put off? How dangerous is that? Well, it is something you can put off, but ultimately it will result in potentially greater needs for the tooth that exists, you know, greater likelihood that you might lose the tooth as an example. So the way, what I would advise to Linda is, you know, go to a dentist, see if you can work with them to figure something out. You know, payment plans are now common in some parts of Canada in terms of accessing care. So, you know, it's not that a dentist won't work with you to help you meet your needs. And last but not least, I know this is not ideal, but Linda also has the option of a denture. 
you know, again, not ideal, but it is something that will meet her aesthetic and functional needs. So she doesn't necessarily have to walk around with no tooth. Yes, of course, if it were me, I would like the gum graft. I would like the tooth to be saved. But then it's going to have to be those trade-offs that Linda potentially is currently facing. That's the nature of our dental care system and how it functions uh, with respect to meeting people's needs. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't advise Linda, oh, just wait it out and see what happens with this new federal dental care plan because that that could impact her health. So just go get an opinion, see how your dentist can work with you to, to, to help you meet your needs. Um, I'm confident that something can be done. Thanks to Dr. Quinones for his insights on navigating Canada's dental care system regardless of your income. While we wait for the federal dental benefit to expand its coverage to support more Canadians, if you find yourself in a situation like Linda, I've been there before, here's what you've got to do. First, look, you've heard this from smarter people than me, but please just floss your teeth. I know preventative dental care doesn't prevent every single dental problem, but brushing a minimum of two times per day and flossing at least once per day will make a difference to your overall dental health, especially if you're not attending those annual or biannual cleanings. Second, if you just can't afford to regularly see a dentist, let alone during emergencies, you do have some options. If you're in an area of the country that's got a dentistry school, Look into the reduced cost services that they can provide and see if you can get an appointment or at least get on the wait list for one. There may also be a public dental clinic nearby that offers discounted services that you might qualify for. And if neither of these things are options, Dr. Quinones says it is possible a dentist may offer their services pro bono. And if you or your family have a dentist you've been going to for a while... It never hurts to ask whether they offer payment plans or would consider giving you a discount on an emergency procedure. And finally, as impossible as it might be in this economy, if you can make room in your budget for a medical emergency fund or just an emergency fund in general, do what you can to avoid Linda's situation and consider just setting up a small monthly contribution, even if it's just 10 or $20. If you wind up, on a payment plan, you may be grateful to have a good start to paying it off. Thanks again to Dr. Carlos Quinones for giving us that crash course into how dental care came to be thought of as separate from overall health care in Canada and what we can do to keep our teeth as shiny and intact as possible. And thanks, of course, to Linda for reaching out and sharing her money problem with us. If you would like to do the same thing and get some advice from an expert, even if it's tough to talk about, we want to hear from you. I hope you know by listening to this episode that we will find somebody who gets it to talk with. We get it too. You can email us absolutely anytime. That address is hello at itepod.ca. You can also call us and just leave a voicemail and talk it out. That number is 416-935-5935. And Please remember, if you're going to do that, you need to leave us a way to get back in touch with you if we want to help you out. If you want to find us on social media for a little bonus content, we are on both Instagram and TikTok at In This Economy Pod. If you want more of this show, or if you'd like to share this show with someone you think could use it, we would be extremely appreciative of that. Every review counts. It helps other people find this show. 
And please give us any feedback you have. We'd love to hear it. That's how we make this show better. I am your host and executive producer, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This episode was written and produced by Ali Graham. The sound design was done by Robin Edgar. And Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Kay is our manager of business development. And together, that's us, the Frequency Podcast Network. Thanks once again for listening. We'll talk to you next week on In This Economy. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency.